Francis Bruton describes the mood of the authorities on the weekend before the St. Peter's Field meeting. According to the Chronicle, there was an influx of strangers on the Saturday and Sunday preceding the eventful Monday. The same paper speaks of painful anticipation on the Sunday as to how the following day would terminate. The general opinion on change on the Saturday was that the magistrates had decided not to disturb the meeting, unless some breach of the peace occurred, and men of all parties said that the meeting would go off quietly. No disturbance of any kind took place in Manchester on Sunday the 15th of August. It was a grand opportunity for a man with vision, but the responsible authorities, i.e. the Special Committee of the Magistrates of Lancashire and Cheshire, which included three clergymen, meeting in Manchester, seemed to have been in a panic. They sat till midnight on Sunday without being able to decide what to do. For all their agents' reports of seditious talk on the reform meeting platforms, what alarmed the magistrates more than anything else were the drilling exercises that had proved a popular form of recreation in the weeks leading up to the meeting. For Samuel Bamford, the intention of these exercises was far removed from violence. We had frequently been taunted by the press with our ragged, dirty appearance at these assemblages, with the confusion of our proceedings, and the mob-like crowds in which our numbers were mustered, and we determined that, for once at least, these reflections should not be deserved that we would disarm the bitterness of our political opponents by a display of cleanliness, sobriety and decorum such as we never before had exhibited. In short, we would deserve their respect by showing that we respected ourselves and knew how to exercise our rights of meeting, as it were well Englishmen always should do in a spirit of sober thoughtfulness, respectful at the same time to the opinions of others. Cleanliness, sobriety, order were the first injunctions issued by the committee to which on the suggestion of mr hunt was subsequently added that of peace the fulfilment of the two first was left to the good sense of those who intended to join our procession to this grand meeting the observance of the third and the last injunctions order peace were provided for by general regulations order in our movements was obtained by drilling, and peace, on our parts, was secured by a prohibition of all weapons of offence or defence, and by the strictest discipline of silence, steadiness, and obedience to the directions of the conductors. Thus our arrangements, by constant practice and an alert willingness, were soon rendered perfect, and ten thousand men moved with the regularity of ten score. These drillings were also to our sedentary weavers and spinners, periods of healthful exercise and enjoyment. Our drill-masters were generally old soldiers of the line, or of local militia regiments. They put the lads through their facings in quick time, and soon taught them to march with a steadiness and regularity which would not have disgraced a regiment on parade. When dusk came, and we could no longer see to work, we jumped from our looms and rushed to the sweet cool air of the fields, or the wastelands, or the green lane-sides. We mustered, we fell into rank, we faced, marched, halted, faced about, counter-marched, halted again, dressed and wheeled in quick succession, and without confusion. Or, in the grey of a fine Sunday morn, we would saunter through the mists, 
fragrant with the night odour of flowers and of new hay, and ascending the Tandle Hills, salute the broad sun as he climbed from behind the high moors of Saddleworth. Maidens would sometimes come with their milk cans from the farms of Hullswood, a Gerard Hay, or the fold near us, and we would sit and take delicious draughts, new from the churn, for which we paid the girls in money, whilst a favoured youth or so might be permitted to add something more, a tender word or a salute, when, blushing and laughing, away would the nymphs run for a fresh supply to carry home. Next would follow a long drill in squads, and so expert were the youths that they would form a line and march down the face, or up the steep, or along the sides of the rushpenny, and, suddenly halting, would dress in an instant in a manner which called forth the praises of the old campaigners. Then, when they broke for a little rest, would follow a jumping match, or a race, or a friendly wrestle, or a roll down the hill amid the laughter of others sitting in the sun. Some would be squatted on the lee of a bush of gorse, a tall fern, some reading, some conversing in earnest discussion on the state of trade or national affairs, or on their own privations or those of their neighbours, for few secrets were kept of those matters. Some would be seen smoking their pipes, kindled by burning glasses, and so till the bugle sounded to drill, and after that away to breakfast. Such was one of our drilling parties. There were no arms. There was no use for any, no pretence for any, nor would they have been permitted. Some of the elderly men, the old soldiers, or those who came to watch, might bring a walking staff, or a young fellow might pull a stake from a hedge in going to drill, or in returning home. But assuredly we had nothing like arms about us. There were no armed meetings. There were no midnight drillings. Why should we seek to conceal what we had no hesitation in performing in broad day? Such as I have described were all our drillings, about which so much was afterwards said. We obtained by them all we sought or thought of, an expertness and order whilst moving in bodies, and there was no hyperbole in the statement which a magistrate afterwards made on oath that the party with the blue and green banners came upon the field in beautiful order, adding, I think, that not until then did he become alarmed. Some extravagances, some acts, and some speeches, better left alone, certainly did take place. When the men clapped their hands in standing at ease, some would jokingly say it was firing, while those who were sent to observe us, and probably we were seldom unattended by such, and who knew little about military motions, would take the joke as a reality, and report accordingly. Whence probably it would be surmised that we had arms, and that our drillings were only preparatory to their more effective use. On the afternoon of Friday the 13th of August, I saw Mr. Hunt at the residence of Mr. Johnson at Smedley. Tuke, the painter, was amending Mr. Hunt's portrait, as indeed it's wanted. In the course of conversation, Mr. Hunt expressed himself as apprehensive lest the people from the country should bring arms to the meeting on the following Monday, and he desired me to caution those from Middleton against so doing. He also showed me a letter on a placard addressed to the reformers of Manchester and its neighbourhood, wherein he entreated them to come to the meeting, armed only with a self-approving conscience. He said that if the soldiers did attack the people, 
and take their caps of liberty and their banners, still he hoped they would proceed to the meeting and not commit any violence. I must own that this was new and somewhat unpalatable advice to me. I had not the most remote wish to attack either person or property, but I had always supposed that Englishmen, whether individually or in bodies, were justifiable by law in repelling an attack when in the king's peace, as I certainly calculated we should be, whilst in attendance at a legally constituted assemblage. My crude notions led me to opine that we had a right to go to this place, and that consequently there would not be any protection in law to those who might choose to interrupt us in our right. I was almost certain there could be no harm whatever in taking a score or two of cudgels, just to keep the specials at a respectful distance from our line, but this was not permitted. Still, I scarcely liked the idea of walking my neighbours into a crowd, both personally and politically adverse to us, and without means to awe them or to defend ourselves. Was it not a fact that a numerous body of men had been sworn in to act as special constables? Was not an armed association formed at Manchester, and had not weapons been liberally distributed? And what could we do, if attacked by those men, with nothing to defend ourselves? But Mr. Hunt combated these notions. Were there not the laws of the country to protect us, would not their authority be upheld by those sworn to administer them? And then was it likely at all that the magistrates would permit a peaceable and legal assemblage to be interfered with? If we were in the right, were they not our guardians? If wrong, could they not send us home by reading the Riot Act? Assuredly, whilst we respected the law, all would be well on our side. But on the Sunday morning, a circumstance occurred, which probably eradicated from the minds of the magistrates and our opponents generally, whatever sentiments of indulgence they might have hitherto retained towards us. It is set forth in the following document. Examination of James Murray of number 2 Withy Grove, Manchester, Confectioner, who, on his oath, saith that on Sunday last, the 15th instant, he was at White Moss near Middleton, about five miles from Manchester, between three and four o'clock in the morning, and saw there assembled between fourteen and fifteen hundred men, the greatest number of whom were formed in two bodies, in the form of solid squares. The remainder were in small parties of between twenty and thirty each. There were about thirty such parties, each under the direction of a person acting as a drill sergeant, and were going through military movements. That examinant went amongst them, and immediately one of the drill sergeants asked him to fall in. He said he thought he should soon, or gave some such answer. He then began to move away, upon which some persons who were drilling cried out, Spies! This examinant, and William Shawcross and Thomas Rymer and his son, all of whom had accompanied this examinant from Manchester, continued to retire. The body of men then cried out, Mill them! Murder them! Near one hundred men then pursued this examinant and his companions. They overtook them near a lane-end at the edge of the moss, and began to pelt them with clods of earth. They at last came up to the examinant and his companions, and beat them very severely. Examinant begged they would not murder him, but the general cry was, Damn him! Kill him! Murder him! Examinant said, 
"'You treat me very differently to what nations treat each other's prisoners when they are at war. "'Suppose that I am an enemy. You ought to treat me as a prisoner.' "'They said, "'How will you treat us if you take us prisoners when we come to Manchester?' "'Examinant knew, at the time, that a meeting was appointed for the next day, Monday, at Manchester. "'The men kept beating Examinant all the time. "'At last they debated among themselves whether they would kill Examinant or forgive him, "'and they determined to forgive him, provided he would go down upon his knees and beg pardon to them, "'and swear never to be a king's man again, or to mention the name of a king. "'Examinant complied to save his life.' they standing over him with sticks, as he apprehended, to murder him, provided he had objected. They afterwards went away. Examinant was not previously acquainted with any of the persons assembled that he saw, but it is certain that he should know again two of those who beat him. The greatest part of the number assembled had stout sticks from three to four feet long. In consequence of the ill-treatment received by Examinant as above, he was confined to his bed for three days. Sworn at Manchester before me, R. A. Fletcher, James Murray, this 21st day of August, 1819. Some years afterwards, a young man, named Robert Lancashire, informed me that the detection of an assault on these parties happened as follows. He said he was coming from his work at Manchester late on Saturday night, when he fell into company with some men whom he did not know, but who proved to be Murray and his companions. The men began to converse with him, chiefly on the state of the country, and as he was of a communicative turn, they questioned him about the drilling parties, and particularly those who were said to frequent the White Moss, and he told them all he knew about such parties. The people at the White Lion at Blakely were up, and they all went into the house and had something to drink during which he promised to show the men into the road leading to the moss. He also heard them use expressions to each other which convinced him they were sent by the police to watch the drillers, and, as they were going to take advantage of others, he determined to do the same by them. He accordingly put them into a road which led to the moss, and afterwards, taking a shorter way over the fields, he apprised the drillers of the sort of persons who were coming, and the consequence was, that they were set upon and beaten, as described by James Murray. This circumstance, as before intimated, was unfortunate for us. On the return of Murray and his companions to Manchester, they were visited by some of the authorities, to whom their statements were given. A special meeting was held at the police office that same forenoon, and it is probable that, at that meeting, it was determined to return a full measure of severity to us on the following day, should any circumstance arise to sanction such a proceeding. James Murray was, of course, rather more than a confectioner. He was a well-known spy, known as Gingerbread Jack, who had enrolled as a special constable in the Magistrates Armed Association. It is likely that he and his companions were sent to White Moss to provoke the attack of which they were, apparently, innocent victims. The magistrates had made their own preparations for the meeting on Monday the 16th. Sir John Bing, commander of the army in the north, had been called upon to reinforce the military presence. On the day of the meeting, Lieutenant Colonel Guy Lestrange had six troops of cavalry from the 15th Hussars, 
and seven companies of infantry under his command in Manchester. Many more were on hand in the surrounding towns. Two six-pounder artillery guns had been dragged through the town on market day and were stationed close to St. Peter's Field. The magistrates had requested that Sir John Byng command the troops in person, but he replied that he placed his confidence in Lestrange, and that he was, in any case, indisposed while attending a race-meeting at York, at which his horses were competing. The one military force that Lestrange did not command on the day were the regiments of yeomanry cavalry. While the Cheshire Yeomanry was a long-established force, the Manchester and Salford regiments had been more recently formed. For Francis Bruton, the deployment of the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry was the main cause of the catastrophe that was to ensue. A careful examination of the evidence makes it clear that the catastrophe was, as far as can be seen now, largely due to the employment at the outset of a body of volunteer cavalry known as the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry. It is not easy to trace the history of these troops. No contemporary records seem to exist. We can, however, fix the date of their formation within a few months. In his famous tract entitled An Exposure of the Calumnies, etc., Mr. Francis Phillips, in quoting a letter of thanks from Lord Sidmouth to the commander of the Cheshire Yeomanry, dated the 12th of March, 1817, says, The Manchester Yeomanry had not then been embodied. Yet, Aston, in his Metrical Records of Manchester, states that the corps was formed in 1817, and gives some details of its inception. We are therefore justified in supposing that it was embodied as the result of the resolution quoted above. In other words, that, apparently in emulation of the Cheshire Yeomanry, the corps was instituted mainly for the purpose of assisting the civil authorities in maintaining order. With reference to the number employed at Peterloo, Mr Phillips speaks, page 58, of the 116 Manchester and Salford Yeomen who were on duty on the 16th of August. The actual names, addresses and occupations of these men are given in the Manchester Observer, for the 20th of April, 1822. And this again is important evidence. They are nearly all from Manchester, a few coming from Pendleton and Stretford, mostly tradesmen, innkeepers and small manufacturers, e.g. cheesemongers, ironmongers, tailors, watchmakers, calico printers, butchers, corn merchants, butter factors, and so on. It would be unreasonable to suppose that such a levy would contain many skilled horsemen, and this, as we shall see, was fully borne out at Peterloo. Lieutenant Jolliffe says of them, Without the knowledge possessed by a strictly speaking military body, they were placed most unwisely, as it appeared, under the immediate command of the civil authorities, and this greatly aggravated the disasters of the day. It may easily be supposed that the use of these local levies of mounted troops for purposes of this kind aroused bitter resentment in the minds of the labouring population, which only grew as time went on. Thus we need not be surprised to find these words in the Manchester Observer, just a month before the tragedy of Peterloo. The stupid boobies of Roman cavalry in the neighbourhood have only just made the discovery that the mind and muscle of the country are at length united and during the past week have been foaming and broiling themselves to death in getting their swords ground and their pistols examined. The yeomanry are, generally speaking, the fawning dependence of the great, 
with a few fools and a greater proportion of coxcombs, who imagine they acquire considerable importance by wearing regimentals. The sharpening of the swords, by the way, was fully acknowledged by the other side. Thus Mr. Phillips writes, The simple history of all the tales we have heard of sharpening sabres is briefly this. On the 7th of July the government issued orders to the Cheshire and Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry, through the Lord's Lieutenant, to hold themselves in readiness, and consequently most of the Manchester Cavalry sent their arms to the same cutler which the corps during the last war had employed to put them in condition. All these details are important as aggravating the bitter feelings which already existed, and we shall see later that when this improvised corps advanced into the crowd, using their sharpened swords, they were in some cases individually recognised by those at whom they struck. As we approach the date of Peterloo, the confidence reposed in the volunteer cavalry by the authorities becomes even more apparent, and about a month before the event, the commander of the Cheshire Yeomanry received orders to hold his regiment in readiness at a moment's notice to aid the civil power. Meanwhile, the magistrates complained to the Home Secretary that as the law stood, they were unable to interfere with the meetings of the reformers, notwithstanding their decided conviction of their mischief and danger, and that, upon this most important point, they were unarmed. These are the very words which Mr. L. C. Hobhouse took as his text in the able letter to Lord Castlereagh. Just before midnight, on the eve of the fateful meeting, James Norris, the most nervous of the magistrates, wrote to the Home Office. I hope peace may be preserved, he wrote, but under all circumstances it is scarcely possible to expect it. And, in short, in this respect, we are in a state of painful uncertainty. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.